This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Everybody, this is Jared Van Hees with the Habitat Podcast. Thanks again for tuning in with us this week. We have a great guest from Pennsylvania. His name is Phil Holcomb. Been very excited to get Phil on the line for uh, a few weeks now. Um, we've been chatting back and forth on Facebook and had a lot of good topics to cover. So really excited to dive into that. So thanks again for tuning in. Uh, Jesse, the co-host, he's not available this evening due to the late notice of this podcast. I kind of pulled an audible and and scheduled this uh, earlier today, so he uh, was not able to make it, but that's okay because we dive into a ton of good topics on this podcast. Um, I want to thank everybody for your great feedback and support online that, that we've been getting whether it's the comments on the HabitatPodcast.com website or Facebook, etc. Even the private messages have, have been great. I've met a lot of good people so far, um, having a lot of good feedback and reviews, and uh, just just very grateful and excited to keep doing this and, and learning as we go along here. So thanks again, and uh, without any more yapping, let's dive into this week's episode. Phil, can you hear me? I can. All right, buddy. Welcome to the show. I appreciate you coming on tonight. Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Oh, uh, no problem. I uh, I kind of threw an audible today, kind of last minute, so uh, Jesse was not able to join, but you know what? We have a lot of good stuff to cover here. You and I have been chatting on uh, Facebook for, I don't know now, a couple of weeks to a month and covered some real good stuff, so I'm excited to get into this tonight. Absolutely. Well, you know how we normally start, like to hear, you know, who you are, 
and and it's always kind of my favorite part. It kind of paints the picture and, and really shows uh, kind of the listeners that you know put something in their head about about who you are and where you're from, all that good stuff. So let's hear it. Sure. Um, so I'm from uh, northeastern Pennsylvania, uh, middle of nowhere, very very small county, very rural. Um, you know, it takes us uh, 45 minutes to an hour to uh, to go anywhere. Um, <clears throat> so um, it's nice in a lot of regards because uh, we have a whole lot of hunting, fishing, and outdoor opportunities right in our backyard. Um, but uh, having lived um, in, a, in a lot of different places across the country, um, from urban, suburban, uh, you know, to, uh, to, to very, very rural, uh, some of the modern conveniences are are a little bit um, difficult to do without at times, but um, you get used to it and learn to uh, to plan ahead a lot more um, than uh, when you can just you know run down the block to uh, to the pharmacy or something like that. So, um, <clears throat> any rate, uh, yeah, just uh, uh, really like the area where I live and where I get to to hunt and and fish and, uh, and, and enjoy the outdoors. Now, when you say some of like the, uh, everyday things that, that one like myself might take for granted, what do you mean exactly? Like how far out in the sticks are you? <laughs> um, so I live about four miles from town and I say town in, in air quotes there. Um, so my County is, uh, the second least populated county in in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, um, and in fact, we have we have one traffic light in the entire county. And uh, entire county, four, entire county, one traffic light. Okay. Um, and that's about four miles uh, from where I live, and that's in town. Um, and uh, you know, it's it's a typical small town. You got two gas stations. Um, you know the post office. Uh, you've got uh, you know maybe two two restaurant slash kind of diner type things, uh, two bars, um, two grocery stores, small, very small, like not even like big, you know, nationally like recognized chains or anything like that. Um, I like how there's and, one uh, stoplight and two bars. That's yeah, hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Well, there used to be more bars than that. <laughs> <laughs> um, there never used to be more more traffic lights than that. Oh man, that's um, awesome. Yeah, so it's uh, you know, it's, it's just it's very small, um, and and you know things like uh, you know we don't have we don't have like like delivery. Like you couldn't just call up and get like Chinese delivered. You couldn't just call up and get pizza delivered or something like that. It's just it's it's not happening. Um, wow. Some nights of the week, you know, uh, various like. You know, dining establishments are just, they're just not open. Um, and if you don't get there by a certain point in time, they might have already shut the kitchen down because, you know, there just weren't that many people that came in that night. So they're like, you know what, we're, we're, uh, you know, we're calling it an early, an early night. So, um, you know, you really, you really have to be, um, prepared, you know, do your shopping, uh, in bulk, that type of thing, you know, like for, you know, for the month, so to speak, unless you, you know, really want to, want to, you know, push the limits every now and then. But, uh, so it's nice. I mean, uh, you know, we've got, uh, like the area where, uh, Richard Yagi lives. Um, he's about, 
an hour to my, uh, you know, west and, and south a little bit. Um, okay. And uh, that's that's like one of the closer kind of more um, developed, you know, urban areas where, you know, there's like shopping malls and, and things like that, big box stores and all that good stuff. Um, and uh, And then to my east, the next closest area of, you know, that people might even recognize would be like the Wilkes-Barre Scranton area. And that's about, you know, uh, 55 minutes to an hour. Um, we're kind of like 55 minutes to an hour to either direction or any direction. And um, the New York state border is about 45 minutes to my north. Um, and uh, so like Elmira and Binghamton <coughs> in the southern tier of New York would be uh, also right around the hour mark. So pretty much where I'm located, like, is it's about an hour, <laughs> an hour one way to to any area that's kind of like, uh, you know, some semblance of uh, of modern civilization. <laughs> okay. Now, first of all, what's the terrain like there? Are you in, uh, I believe, what would be like some of the Appalachian foothills or any sort of hills, or are you um, in a different sort of terrain? And how did you end up where you're at now? Like, um, how did you, yeah, so, you get out to the sticks? Are you from there, or, you know? Well, my um, I grew up in in north central Pennsylvania, um, actually not too far again from where like um, where Rich Yagi is. Um, yeah. And uh, in fact, we actually uh, lived in the same town at one point in time, just at different different times. Like we we didn't cross paths. Like I grew up in that town and moved out when I was thirteen and. He had kind of moved into that area. Oh wow! Small world. Later in, in, in adulthood, yeah, and it's and it's a small it is a, it's a small town. Um, but uh, no, I, I grew up in central Pennsylvania, um, and uh, lived in that area until I was about thirteen. We uh, we moved to northern New Jersey, um, and uh, spent a couple of years there, and then. Um, Central Massachusetts. After that, that's where I actually, that's where I graduated high school from. Um, and then uh, from there, I went on to college. I went to Syracuse University. Um, so I was in Central New York uh, for four years. Uh, from there, ended up moving down to the east end of Long Island in New York. Spent a couple of years out there. Um, <clears throat> and uh, in the meantime of all of that, my my parents had moved. Um, several other times uh, during that time period. It's my dad's um, career kind of, uh, that just was a part of it, moving around okay. every couple of years. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, I got to uh, got to see a lot, <clears throat> a lot of the country, a lot of different places. Um, and uh, eventually I was living on the east end of Long Island, and um, the job um, that I was in, while it was great, and I would still love to be doing it to this day uh, in public service, uh, working for the state, um, <clears throat> just uh, in one of the highest cost of living areas in the country. It was it was just like I came to a realization that some, it, it just was going to be difficult to own land like the way I wanted to own land right. um, in that area. Um, you know, a, uh, a a very very small house. Um, you know, outdated house on a on a you know a tenth of an acre, you know, could be a five or six hundred thousand dollar investment. You know, oh my. So, yeah. So um, 
it just got to the point where it was like, you know, it's not making sense. This isn't making sense. It's great. I love what I'm doing, but some of my goals just aren't going to be achievable. Um, and, uh, ended up, um, moving back to Pennsylvania into the area where I am now, which is happens to be where, um, both of my parents, um, were born and grew up. Oh, wow. And, uh, just have a lot of family ties to the area anyway. Um, and, uh, so that's kind of how I ended up back in, back in the middle of nowhere, kind of, uh, full circle. Like I used to come up to this area a lot when I was a kid, um, and, you know, come up on uh, in summers and, uh, and, uh, over holidays and things like that, <clears throat> have a lot of family and stuff in the area. So it was a, it was a pretty good, uh, pretty good way to transition. And my parents ended up moving back settling back in this area as well so oh that's nice um, to have them nearby you know, I know yeah you have absolutely you're a dad yep. so that helps <laughs> yeah yeah having uh grandma and grandpa support for uh for a four and a half year old is, is definitely a good good thing oh very nice man yeah it, it sounds quiet and and perfect to someone like me i'm not sure my <laughs> wife would last out there um <laughs> But I'm pretty sure I would never come back. And, uh, well, you know who, uh, you always say, happy wife, happy life. But <laughs> then I had to get my little slice of uh, heaven as well. So only problem is mine is about an hour and 15 minutes away. And do you live on yours or are you close? No, I'm I'm about, uh, I'm, I'm within a 10-minute drive. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, don't live on it, but it's close. It's very close. No, that's perfect. If you lived on it, you might be out there more and and more and more. Might (laughs) might even be too much. Who knows? Yeah. Or not. Who knows? But yeah, sometimes uh, you know the point of diminishing return, like um, exactly. And uh, but no, there's but there's also there's a whole other conversation to be had in terms of uh, presence on a hunting property. Um, You know. Do's, don'ts, like some people take it to the extreme of like don't ever go on ever for any reason other than to slip into a tree stand. And then there's people who are like, you know, eh, whatever, I'm, you know, going to build a dirt bike track, you know, (laughs) and rip and tear. Right. So I I think personally my experience with with smaller pieces of property, um, smaller pieces of property, um, you know, where you have, um, like maybe like in the suburbs or close to town or, or something like that, where deer do, they just, they encounter, they encounter people, you know, they encounter people throughout every day of their life and having a human intrusion in some ways is not catastrophic, like doesn't shut them down. It's not like, some magic, you know, nocturnal powder gets sprinkled by, you know, human scent and, and every deer in the in the county just goes on high alert. Like there's certain places at certain times where it's appropriate and they understand it and they interpret it as being non threatening. And then there's place there's the opposite of that where they encounter it, they see it, they smell it, whatever, um, and interpret it as a threat. <clears throat> so Deer just they they just in that that interface um, zone where there's you know the the kind of human environment <clears throat> as well as the deer environment. I feel like those deer just are extremely perceptive and and particularly they're extremely perceptive 
in terms of determining predatory behavior. So, you know what I mean? Like, they get along. They know how. Like, if they got if they got freaked out every time they encountered human presence or human disturbance, like, they'd spend their entire day just wired, not yeah. able to do anything. I know what it's you're so saying. Stressed. I mean, it's, it's acclimation. Like, I mean, we, yep. I used to hunt a property next to a metro park here, <laughs> and uh, it sounds like it's cheating. And I never shot anything there, but I wish I would have because those, those bucks were freaking giants, but some of the, some of the does and whatnot, I mean, you see people are walking by every day, and, uh, and, and then you go up north, like northern Michigan, and you walk in the woods up there, and you hear deer blowing a quarter mile away, (laughs) and it could be somebody else, but it's most likely you, and it's like, I I get it, yeah, it's a total, and on small property, everything is magnified times a hundred the smaller you get right so (laughs) yeah to your point i mean i know i want to interview you but and nobody really wants to hear about me the whole time but like my (laughs) my little property i'm pretty anal about it um maybe too much i i don't know i'm i'm gonna keep trying different things but uh i didn't hunt it last year at all and, and it was my first year i owned it i didn't hunt it until like October 28th or something. Yeah. And all my friends were like, what are you doing? Can't you, are you going nuts not not getting out there? I'm like, yeah, but yeah, yeah. if I'm out there burning exactly. it up all of October, November's yeah. not going to be very cool. So No, I, and, you know, that that's one of the things um, with my my experience with, with small properties has been um, depending on how they set up, how – I mean, like how they physically, geographically set up and fit into the puzzle of the local deer herd movement pattern, as well as how the manager um, actually sets them up to, to capitalize on parts of those patterns, right? right. Yep. Um, more often than not, what I've seen, and like, you know, there, sure, there's exceptions. There's 100% exception to this, but... What I see a lot is when you get onto some of those smaller size pieces, um, that's probably the like the most successful way um, to hunt them is to to set them up for focus on the rut um, and what I like to refer to as like um, rut trap, rut bait. So like you're creating the bait. Uh, you know, on your property, on that small property uh, for that time period of, of, of the rut. And then you're creating the trap. So you're creating, you're either creating or, or enhancing existing pinch points, funnels, um, bottlenecks and things like that to kind of like set up the flow of movement through the property during the rut in terms of if you're a buck and you're either, with a doe, chasing a doe, looking for does. Um, yeah. How can you how can you set that property up to take advantage of that natural movement? Um, and uh, and you know the, the the kind of linchpin of setting that up is making sure that you have does there um, during huntable hours. Yeah. Um, for some properties, that means creating or enhancing bedding, and for other properties, it may actually end up being um food right um so 
like <clears throat> my personal experience with 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 a small property that I have is actually food worked out to be better option than bedding because of the access. Um, if they were bedded there, it would be incredibly difficult to get in or out without blowing deer out. Um, but with putting food in, I could then kind of dial those times in where the deer are going to be there to, to being, you know, the, uh, the typical crepuscular pattern of, of uh, dawn or dusk and create my access based around that. Um, and honestly, during the rut, um, you know, late pre-rut, particularly when those bucks are really on their feet and they're, they're, they're out searching, um, <clears throat> those type of small little food plots and stuff that are tucked into good cover are just as good in the middle of the day as they are at either dawn or dusk. That's a good point. Um, I hadn't really thought about that. Yeah, I, mine's kind of set up the same way with the food and, and then we're kind of diving in right into it here with with um, your your approach, if you will, on on small properties. What else do you take a look at when you're approaching a small property like that? Um, or any small the neighborhood, property, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, the neighborhood really. Um, so not not just the adjoining adjacent properties, but the next several rings of properties out. Um, you're dealing with, I mean, and, and, and the other thing too, that helps to kind of like, you know, get out <clears throat> in the open right away is, is, you know, you hear people talking a lot, like, you know, amongst ourselves, people who are really into it, we say deer and, um, <laughs> you know, quite often it's like, well, when I say deer in this context, I mean a mature buck, or when I say deer in this context, I mean, you know, generally speaking, the animal that is, you know, and the white tail. Right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, like what else are we doing this for, you know? Right, right. So, like, it, it, you know, in the small property sense, like when I'm, like when I say when you're looking at, like, these several different layers of properties moving, you know, concentric, concentric rings out from your property, um, you're dealing with deer, meaning mature bucks um, in this particular sense that, you know, have – have home ranges and they have core ranges, right? So the core range is within the home range. Um, the home range is the overall extent of which um, they spend their life. Um, that that geographic location um, that they spend their life in. Their their core range is within that entire extent where they spend the overwhelming majority of their life. Um, so it comes to be if you own a small piece of land, um, you're not always going to be hunting a buck who's in his core range. Um, you may not have any bucks that have your property within their core range. Um, you you more than likely have a property that is within um, a buck's home range. You know, may not spend a whole lot of time there. Passes through. Uh, is aware of it, um, has reasons to come there, you know, that type of thing. So, like, when I am looking at it, I'm thinking to myself, okay, so if if we're pretty confident that this small piece is not, you know, have a core range uh, buck or bucks that utilize it, 
then we're looking at those home range bucks and what you know what does it come down to when when would would a buck that doesn't spend uh you know most of his days on or near your property when would he show up and that's the rut um so you know it 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 just makes sense a lot of times um to go out and look at these these areas outside of your small property and kind of try to figure out like um areas where you know you might have have uh concentrations of of uh of bucks um that <clears throat> ultimately will end up being the bucks that you hunt on your small property they they may even be a mile and a quarter a mile and a half two miles away in the in say the summer and early fall but as the rut kicks in and and those uh bachelor groups break up the uh early part of the fall they get hard horn you know and these bucks start kind of dispersing out into their fall ranges and they start kind of um increasing the, the in some ways the uh amount of ground that they cover and they're kind of checking in on those places where they know that the does tend to congregate you know you want your property to be on that list <laughs> i you gotcha know. so when you're looking at your your property your your um section your five miles square are you looking at it to decide what you're going to do in terms of enhancing your habitat or are you talking yeah. when you're looking for property in the first place to maybe purchase or or both or uh all of it i mean you know in my case like it wasn't property that i went out and like purposely per- purchased for for hunting it was property that was in the in the family gotcha um gotcha. so like i was just it's like it is what it is it is where it is like i I just have to figure out like the parts of the of the puzzle, like how they how they they fall into place for me, and then how do I work with those, you know, to my advantage. So, I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of people probably in the same way. A lot of people even just like went out and picked up a, a small piece and and were like, yeah, I can hunt on this, and and you know, it might not even be their primary hunting location. Like, it may have other properties they have access to. Uh, or whatever, and they just have this one <clears throat> kind of uh, small, small acreage piece. And, you know, sometimes it's like it, it ends up being that, like, fallback spot where you're like, oh, none of my, you know, the wind's all wrong for, you know, this place. Or, you know, you don't want to go barging into your best spot, you know, and that type of thing. And these little pieces end up kind of being like, oh, well, you know, I can go sit in my stand there. It's not really going to mess anything up nothing going on it's only five acres you know but if you do it the right way you can make it so that that's the place that you're saving for that perfect wind under the perfect conditions at the perfect time of year you know (laughs) i fully agree i fully agree and what else do you consider when you're looking at these small parcels um so you know basically how does it fit into that that overall big picture um within the neighborhood um and then like what's the access like so how do i get into it you know we start dialing it down into the individual parcel itself um to figure out like how do the deer move through it um how can i make you know take advantage of that um and how can i enhance it how can i make it so that um the odds start you know tipping over to my favor um so 
you know, that can be um, that can be pretty simple stuff. Uh, you know, it could be uh, the positioning of a mock scrape in a favorable location. It could be um, uh, mowing a trail through an old field. Um, it could be, you know, firing up the chainsaw, going out, and, uh, you know, making some <clears throat> some areas that might be, uh, you know, um, better bedding cover. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a number of things, and some of it's super simple, and some of it can be more involved. Um, it just really depends on what you end up, you know, finding on, on, you know, to be the case on the ground. No, those are all good points, and I think um, maybe how others could could do that is maybe by a trail camera survey throughout the the hunting season. Does that fit into that category? Oh yeah. Um, typically, the way I approach most like property setups is I don't um, I don't necessarily dive right into making improvements like year one or you know I mean it depends yeah. on when when access is first secured and like how much scouting and, you know, your, your knowledge of the overall area and stuff like that. But quite often I, I, you know, I feel like one, you know, at least one season of hunting and scouting and things like that, like go a long way um, to being able to make those decisions because, you know, a lot of people don't think of it. Uh, You fire up that chainsaw, you start cutting trees down. That's, it takes decades <laughs> to replace yeah. what you've undone in several hours or minutes even, you know? So, like, you'd better make sure you got it right, you know? Um, yeah, they don't grow back very fast. No, no, not at all. So, you know, I tend to I tend to, to take that, like, maybe a little bit slower approach. I don't, I don't just barge right in there, um, making all sorts of changes and things like that. I, I just – I really want to look for those – for those patterns, those natural patterns that are already in place because it's a hell of a lot easier to reinforce a deer doing what it already does than it is to completely, you know, try to change a deer, you know, just the, the making that pattern be well, 100%, you know, um, opposite of what it has been forever. Um, I totally so, agree. You know, sometimes it's just a matter of, okay, well, the generalized pattern of movement is they move through this 80-yard wide funnel, you know, east-west every evening, whatever it is. Um, Now, if I can take that 80-wide yard funnel and pinch it down to 40 or 50 in one spot, and it's in a spot that I can get into and out of, a killer stand location, like that's a no brainer, you know, but if you barge right in there, maybe you only saw them through the course of the season moving through, you know, 10% of that 80 yard wide funnel, you know, and you, you were like, Oh, okay, well we're going to block that off now because we, we want to push them over to this other potential stand site. You know, now you have a whole new pattern that either they adapt to and adopt and use or they don't mm-hmm. and you just never had the opportunity to observe that whole pattern you know right so. i think no for, for the listeners i think it's good to to point that out i think um going at least one year without cutting trees or, or doing anything drastic just so you can 
you know, get your bearings on a new property. I think that's very important. I think I read that on uh, the QDMA forums a long time ago. I'm I'm wondering if you read it in the same place. Um, but <laughs> no, that that's a that's a great point. And and kind of what I did, and I may have mentioned this before, but I walked the property in like February and I drew. I mean, it's only 15 acres, so it was easy to do this. But I drew rough lines, a rough sketch of the, the shape of the property and where the, the deer were traveling through. Right. And by the end of, you know, 50 lines or so, it's easy to see where you have a pinch point or with all the trails neck down <laughs> together. Um, yeah. Or an area where they're coming from and going to type thing. And, and you know, what what do you do? You'd, you'd put food or a sand, you know, in those high-odd areas. Um I think it's kind of the same thing as, as what you're saying, right? Absolutely. Like, just get those natural patterns and kind of unravel them a little bit and then figure out ways to just take advantage of them or enhance them or reinforce them. Like, just putting, like, you know, trying to, to put as many as many of the odds of success in your corner as possible is what it really just boils down to. And, you know, a lot of that, I think, just comes from plain old, simple, you know, observation, you know, and that's, that's really, that's, that's what scouting, that's what trail cameras, that's what it is, it's just, it's observation, and being able to, to sit down and think about them, uh, you know, you don't have to sit down, you can be like me, I'm a pacer, like right now, I've practically worn a hole in my floor, um, <laughs> back and forth, you know, <laughs> but, um, just, uh, to think about these things, observe them, think about them, you know, analyze them. Like, how does this all play out? You know, what are some of the things that I can do? Like, what, you know, how can I make that pattern work for me? And, you know, that's that's what it comes down to. I think a lot of people want, like, cookie-cutter, you know, out-of-the-box solutions of, right. oh, well, if I just go charging in there with a chainsaw and hinge-cut crap out of three acres – you know, just lay waste and be like, oh, okay, if you if you cut it down, the deer will be here, you know. And it just it doesn't always happen. <laughs> In fact, it virtually just doesn't happen that way. But, you know, just people, especially on small acres, where you only have so much of those resources to work with. Right. If you don't get it right. You know, you can't just move over to the next section of the big farm and and uh, try something else. You know, you just really need to to make those observations, be detailed, be thorough, make them throughout the year. You know, if with with a small property that is a you know hunting property, obviously the fall of the year is like the most important part. That's when your property really needs to be working. That's when it really needs to be dialed in. Um, but a lot of the little intricate pieces of the puzzle uh, can be figured out at other parts of the year, you know. Um, I used to be like a really diehard shed hunter. I used to put as much effort into hunting sheds as, as I did hunting deer. Um, and, uh, one of the things I found to be, you know, extremely valuable was just at that that time of the year when I'm out looking for sheds, um, the the landscape just st- 
still looks like it did before the snow came, you know. <laughs> it still looks like uh, November, the end of November, middle of November. No, sure it does. It's the perfect time to scout. Yeah, exactly. And all the sign is still there and fresh and preserved from the snow cover on the ground to, you know, the rubs still look fresh, everything. And it just, it looks the same as it would in the, in, in the, in the fall of the year a lot. So I feel like a lot of valuable information can be gleaned at that time of year. Um, you know, that, that late winter, early spring before green up, after the snow has, has melted out, if you're in an area that has snow, um, you can go in and you can really see what happens. And you're not, you're not putting, um, unnecessary pressure on the deer in terms of, you know, screwing them up for a hunt from, you know, from a hunting perspective. You're also, you know, you gotta be a little bit careful because time of year, um, you know, uh, the nutritional demand and, and stresses of winter are still there. You got does, you know, late, um, late in pregnancy, um, where their health, you know, you really don't want to be in pushing them around, um, and, and, and really stressing the, the, the local herd more than you need to. Um, but a quick walk around on a day or two, um, on a small property is going to tell you, it's going to tell you what they did all fall and, uh, you know, help you really dial in that plan. Okay. No, that's another great piece of advice. Um, before we move on, is there anything else that you do when you're approaching a small property, or do we cover the main things? I think I think we're pretty good there. I mean, there's cool. a, there's a million ways, you know, to to skin that cat, and um, you know, I think that's that's one thing that's like so often overlooked with um with a lot of this like habitat uh, work and habitat game like that's going on. Like a lot of people are just want to want it to be like. This, this is, is how this works, yep. right? This is what you need to do, um, and this works for me. Well, the thing is, is it just doesn't doesn't work that way across the board. Everybody has a different set of circumstances, from you know the 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 geographic region where they're located, um, the hunting pressure in their area, um, the circumstances of their life, like. Hey, that guy might have two or three days a year that he, and that's it. That's all he can hunt. You know, that's all he can bow hunt. Those two or three days a year. You know, the, you, the, just the things that nobody seems to see or think about, and they just they just want to like throw out these like mass, um, you know, broad brush strokes. You know, this is uh, this is how you fix that problem, or this is how you set that property up. <clears throat> and that's the thing. It's just. Like I said about observation, like if you can simply master the art of of observation, like you, you got it because you're going to be able to detect and figure out like what it is that makes that property tick um, and how you can make that work for your, you know, to your advantage. Perfect. I think that was well said. Um, now, <laughs> say you observed, you took a look around at all the nearby properties or within a few miles, etc. Say you need food or that's what your your choice, your number one choice is going to be. 
it's food plot season right now, uh, or coming <laughs> into it, at least for a lot of people. Yeah. You and I have been having some interesting conversations on some um, different methods that I would say are not as common as as <laughs> everybody else, and um, honestly really have me intrigued. And <laughs> I'd like to hear more about how you, Phil, go about your food plots. Um I, yeah. I guess just dive in, man. I mean, there's, there's <laughs> a right. couple different. We've talked about a lot uh, over Facebook or whatever. So yeah, yeah. Sure. I I particularly want to hear about like the what some people used to call the throw and mow or or uh, <laughs> I mean, just go ahead. You got it. Sure, sure. So, um, way back in uh, 2003, uh, my first year out of college, um, I had uh, started working with a guy. Uh, older gentleman at the time, um, and he he's actually, he's probably the guy that got me into, like, the the deer management, habitat management, and and overall, like, conservation ethos that okay. um, kind of goes with, uh, goes with, with, you know, the North American um, conservation model. So, um, anyway, he, he was telling me, you know, he, he he knew I hunted and we got along. We we ended up becoming great friends. Um and uh he was like, Well, I'm thinking that place where you're you know, you got permission to hunt there, like if you were allowed to, you could put a food plot in. And if you were gonna put a food plot in, here's how how you should do it and here's what, you know, you should expect and like gave me like the whole work up and I'm like, Wow, like you mean you can do that? Like you can intentionally go into this place and plant some things and, and like the deer will specifically eat that and they'll come to it and like you can start to pattern them around it. I'm like, whoa, like, this is, you know, mind blowing stuff, you know? And, uh, so he kind of got me started down that and, uh, he let me, um, I got permission to, to put a, a small, I mean, we're talking like a 2,800 square foot strip of, clovers or what it came down to um but he let me use you know his walk walk behind rototiller um big rear tine big old um toro and uh that was great like you know ended up using that and put in this little clover clover plot and and that really kind of started it um from from that point on like i was really like wow like I, i i got this i got a green thumb and uh I really like growing stuff and and I really like hunting and and this stuff kind of all like ties together you know and uh from that point forward I uh that guy um he had a uh about a 400 acre farm up in upstate New York that I used to go up there and and uh and hunt and and help uh you know kind of carry out management um you know uh objectives and things and and got some seat time on on tractors and bigger plots and oh, wow. you know yeah like just really got to start to um you know see things uh, you know much bigger much much bigger scale um so that was pretty cool um and uh unfortunately uh this past uh, well several years ago his, his health began to decline pretty rapidly and oh, no. and then this past fall he passed away um interestingly enough his uh 
funeral service was on the opening day of New York State's gun season, um, which he would have had a fit. <laughs> yeah, who planned that? <laughs> Won't get into that. Oh, yeah. Touche. <laughs> um, anyway, um, so that's where it like, kind of like started for me, and then, like, uh, you know, <clears throat> uh, moved back to uh, this area in Pennsylvania and um, uh, had some family land and was like, you know, it's not a big piece, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep trying these food plot things. And, you know, that was like 2006, um, 2007. And I was like, well, I don't have – don't have a tractor. Um, these plots are like way too small to like rent a tractor, borrow a tractor. Like we're not talking tractor size plots. Like we're talking some smaller, you know, micro size plots and some, you know, people want to call them harvest plots, kill plots, hunting plots, whatever. Um, you know, like how many yards that. by how many yards would you say? Just to give people a quick idea. <laughs> so my first one on that property was, uh, you know, probably like, I think it was 23 by 18 is what I pasted out at. There you go. Yeah. So not very big. Um, went in with a weed whacker. It was all goldenrod that was four foot tall. I went in, in like probably about this, this time of year, weed whacked it down to, you know, a foot tall or so. Um, gave it a couple few days. Uh, gone down to the Agway, got a little jug of, uh, you know, the Agway branded cleanup 41% uh, uh, glyphosate right. and yeah. um, just uh, a little two-gallon pump sprayer, you know, and uh, walked around, sprayed it down. And then I basically proceeded to take um, my weed whacker, my line trimmer, and and after all that stuff, that vegetation had died, I took it and I took that weed whacker and I tried to use it like it was a rototiller. I ground all of that vegetation that was still standing up straight down into the ground. I weed whack, I mean, just weed whack the, the surface of the ground because the whole time I'm thinking to myself, I've got to get the dirt. I've okay. got to get the dirt. Um, i hauled an old wheelbarrow up there. I got an old uh, steel rake, and I raked the surface. Any any dead vegetation still, I raked all that off, and I shoveled it into this wheelbarrow, and I hauled it over to the side of the plot and dumped it. And, you know, I got down to the bare dirt, you know, got down to the surface of the dirt. And I was like, all right, great, I got dirt. You know, I'm like, oh, it would be better if I had a, you know, uh, walk behind tiller. I could just till this up and it'd be great. Um, so I just went and broadcast my seed, which was, you know, some uh, some commercial buck on a bag mix, um, and uh, grew this little great little food plot. You know, had limed it and fertilized it, done everything else. Um, but then I started, um, I started doing some. Some reading and and by that point in time I had started to to get um, you know active on uh, on some of the the online forums and there were some people that were saying you know you didn't need to rake all that stuff off you know and I'm like huh this is interesting I've never never heard of this before and so I finally got to the point where I had outgrown that little you know 23 by 18 plot moved a little bit further up the hill, 
into a bigger area, which I now continue to food plot, and it's about a third acre total. But um, you know, that's where it is now. At that point in time, it was about uh, five to six thousand square feet when I had moved up to this, and then I had decided um, I was going to try this whole, you know, come in and mow it and spray it and just spread seed on it and walk away. Um, and I did, and I grew pretty impressive crop of, of, of brassicas. And now at the time, a lot of people were saying, oh, well, you know, you're going to have to increase your seeding rate by about 25% because you're, you're, you don't have, you know, uh, optimal seedbed preparation with all that, you know, all that residue on top. Um, and uh, I did. The problem was I ended up getting about 125% germination rate. Yeah, so they're <laughs> out-competing themselves. Yeah, so it was stunted. Um, but uh, nonetheless, and, I, and, and, when, and when that happened, I was like, wow, like, wait a minute. So we go yeah, back so, to yeah. observation. Go ahead and break <laughs> that down into, like, like exactly what, you did maybe from the first food plot, like you, you sprayed, you had the dead thatch, etc. Just so we know exactly how. Yeah. To do so this particular instance where I didn't bother even like trying to get to dirt, let's just say. Um, okay. So say you're sitting I, there with with weeds, if you will, to start. Yeah, I just I had well, it had previously been um, a a fairly unsuccessful um, clover and ch- and chicory planting. Um, before I went to this, uh, okay. went to this, um, no complete no-till, just mowing and spraying, uh, and broadcasting. So, um, that, it, it had, it still had goldenrod and, you know, overall by mid-July, cause I didn't mow it at all that year because I had finally decided like, yeah, that clover and, clover and chicory plus is now working out. Um, plus I want to rotate it into a, into a fall winter annual for the hunting season um you know i just i just decided all right i'm gonna do it so i went in my weed whacker i mowed it all with the weed whacker um a couple days later maybe a week later i came in with a sprayer i sprayed it with glide um and terminated everything that was growing in it um and then uh, at that point in time, um, you know, we're talking quite a number of years ago at this point, like, uh, uh, probably six to eight years ago, somewhere in that neighborhood. I just, I had thought, oh, okay, well, the traditional conventional thinking is mow, like wait a week or two, spray, wait a week or two. If you had some spots that you didn't, you know, you missed or, you didn't quite get a complete kill, you spray, could spray yeah. again yeah. and then plant, right? So it was like this whole like three to four week period. <laughs> I've since been able to, I'm pretty well dialed in. I can do a lot of this and over the course of, you know, I can do it all in one day if I wanted to. Um, wow. But it, it's just, you get, once you get the, you get pretty well dialed in, you figure out how this stuff works and you've done it and, you, and you're talking in the same the same food plots year in and year out 
you, you know what the response is to to what you have growing in it already, um, to herbicide applications, to mowing oh, yeah. applications, to the weather. Um, those are all things that are very important. But, again, it all ties back to observation. So that first plot, um, I, uh, I threw the seed down and everything, and like I said, everyone was like, oh, yeah, you know, you need to up, up your seeding rate. Um, and I did. And as a result, um, you know, I had way <laughs> – the plot was overpopulated. There was just too many plants growing in it. Um, and so I I observed this, and then I, I got thinking about it, and I started looking. They were literally out in the plot, hands and knees, looking, like following the plant down through the thatch. Like, you know, I, you know this is shortly after germination when I'm realizing, like, that's entirely too thick, you know, um, and I'm looking and I'm seeing like, like that thatch layer was like the perfect, um, just a perfect environment for germination. And, you know, a good number of those plants, um, you know, had germinated without the seed even making it down through the thatch. To the germ. And, yeah. So I could see these seeds. Uh, with a big, you know, long white taproot from germination coming out and going downwards, and it was going to make it to dirt. Um, but the seed itself didn't lay on the dirt, you know. And I got thinking about it. I'm like, wow. I'm like, so yeah, this is this is a lot different than what everybody, you know, like the like just what the mantra is: seed to soil contact. Yeah, um, chill it up, throw the seed down, you know, yeah, disc it up, whatever. Yeah, right. So seed and soil contact is, is, is like, I, I hate this, you know, like I'm sure there's a million people that would like jump all over this, but it's not as, um, it's not such a black and white thing. It's not like, you know, you see a lot of people saying things like, oh, got to make sure you have good seed and soil contact. For some seeds, for for some seeds, yes, and I like the larger the seed in general, um, the the deeper into the dirt or the like more important, you know, even on surface, um, <clears throat> it it has to be. But many of these smaller seed varieties, you can get that seed within three quarters of an inch of the soil in a thatch. Um, it provides the environmental conditions necessary for germination and that white taproot that you when you look at a seed that's germinating comes out it like i guess it's gravity i don't know what it is but they always know which way is down right the dirt. right and those roots go down and they will make contact and for they everybody are i'm sorry so, for everybody that doesn't know what thatch is thatch is just the, the dead um, biomass or weeds or grass or whatever you yeah. you cut that's laying on top of the dirt that's rotting and and, and it holds yep. moisture. So if you see like in a new construction area where they throw out <laughs> straw over yep. grass seed or straw mixed with grass seed, it's essentially the same thing, right? At 100% correct. Okay. And that's what I use as an example a lot of times when when explaining this process to people. It's <clears throat> it's right. It is something like this. This works. Like a lot of people, it's funny because so I see it often. People are like, "Will this work?" And it's like, "Yes, it will." And I can tell you all about it. <laughs> right, right. Um, and uh, and yet people just they can't 
because, you know, it, tradition, it's just how it is. You get a tractor. You yeah. throw the you yeah. back in. You pick up the disc. You go to the field, you know, or the, or the, the two-bottom plow or the three-bottom plow, yeah. and you just drag steel through that soil. And, it, like, I love it. Love the smell of it. I oh, love yeah. tractors. I love diesel exhaust. It looks exhaust. really like, good when it's done. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's great. But you don't have to. Like, you don't need to do it. It is not necessary. Um, at any rate, yeah. So it's just, you know, it's it's a it's a methodology. Now, you know, there's there's a lot of information out there now. There's a lot of guys that are really dialed in with how to do this. Um, and to me, the versatility of it, because um, it can scale up. But you can scale this whole process up from, you know, there's the whole concept of the, you know, poor man's food plot and, you know, things like throw and mow and um, spray, spray and, pl- and pray, you know. Okay, um, yep. They all have these negative connotations and these connotations of, like, it's somehow inferior. Um, it's really not. Um, and you could, like, you could, you could scale this up to if you had tractor size fields and implements. Because you know what you need? You need a boom sprayer. You need a, a bush hog rotary mower. Uh, you need a, a, a broadcast, you know, cone spreader. And um, if I had a wish list, I'd throw in a, a cult packer because that wouldn't hurt. Correct, correct. Um, and uh, Or you so, could even go the, um, the roller crimper direction correct. as well, right? Yeah, if you want to get into, like, fancy no-till drills and oh, man, roller, like roller crimpers and yeah, and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You well, can, that'll never that, happen. <laughs> well, see, and that's why I like to say this is so versatile. Like, there's so many different ways that you can apply the same overall principle of planting um, to match any number of situations and circumstances, any number of scenarios of different pieces of equipment that you either have or don't have. Like, there's a lot of ways to do this. Okay. And, um, um, just to, to kind of just maybe wrap up the um, the process itself. I don't want to – I, I kind of want to make sure we have an understanding on exactly what to do here because I'm probably going to try this. And uh, <laughs> I just want to make sure I'm clear, let alone everybody else, um, Yeah. in case there were questions. So you – and sorry to, to dive back here. but so, so Yeah, you, no problem. You go in, you mow it down. So you got four-foot weeds, you mow it down. And what yeah. that does is it, it takes a lot of your mass and puts it on the ground, a lot of your weeds, and then all these plants that you mowed, correct me if I'm wrong, are going to try to shoot up and regrow like crazy because they've been just chopped off of the head. So that, yeah. I believe, is about a week to ten days later, and that is a perfect time to spray because they're really trying to take in everything to regrow, correct? Yeah. So um, and then you spray them with you, a glide you, you then. Yeah, you hit you hit a lot of the the, the important high level talking points right straight on the head for sure. Okay. Um, so yeah, like um, there's a there's a lot of you know so like order of operations. You know, yeah. I'm sure nobody really wants to think about like you know middle school math again or anything, but order of operations. So um, the order in which you do this method. So there's a there's a lot of variation on it. Um, there's a lot of different ways to do it, and it depends on the time of year, the weather, the equipment you have. 
Well, let's um, talk fall planting because that's coming okay. up um, now or next month. Yeah. Um, maybe a little bit into September for some people. Um, and let's talk, you know, you got basically, let's say your equipment or, or my equipment, which uh, I'm not exactly sure what you have, but mine's pretty basic. So. All right. So um, I often refer to myself as a four appendage drive man tractor. <laughs> all right. So. I get it. That should, yeah. All right. So. Um, I have access to to a number of pieces of equipment and stuff, but I've just I've got a system now and I can do it. I can do it quickly. I don't have to think about it. And you know, it's 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 powered by me. <laughs> okay, so we have the fill man tractor. We've yeah, already yeah. we've already cut once, we've already sprayed with with Roundup or Gly. Um yeah. and now you have a brown dead area. That is, how how tall is this area now? Maybe six inches to a foot. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So and now what um, do you do? Now I mean, at that point, given that scenario, um, you can go ahead and and broadcast your seed. Um, and as the rest of that kind of like material that's in that six to twelve inches high, yep begins to fully yep. die and break down and decompose and fall over. It's just it's just adding to that thatch layer. Um, oh, so you don't mow it again? You could. You oh, totally okay. could. Okay. You don't have to. That's what I'm talking about. Order oh. of operations is like there is no one no one way. Gotcha. Like it so so like I said, like time of year, um actually what's growing there currently, like the type of vegetation, are we talking about like establishing a new plot so we're in an area with you know a lot of like goldenrod or taller stuff a lot of different or, factors you're saying can yeah is this an existing factors? existing food plot that you're now going to try this you know new new method um is it really really hot out uh has it been raining um is it going to rain um you know is it, is it droughty uh you know these are all conditions that i would be looking at and weighing in terms of exactly what my order of operations would be. Um, How about the most idiot-proof? So most idiot-proof, and we'll just go from like, hey, this is that little corner in the field um, that I've always wanted to put a food plot in, but I, I don't have any equipment or I can't get equipment to it or I don't have the time to get equipment to yeah. it. Yeah. Like that Beautiful. type of scenario. Like most like, of probably what our listeners are dealing with, you know? Yeah. So um, – Figure out a way to mow it. So whether that's a weed whacker, um, a, a small tractor with a bush hog, uh, a walk behind, you know, like one of those DR brush mowers. Oh yeah, those are cool. Um, yeah, I get. I have a buddy who has one of those that I borrow all the time. Oh, it's great. Um, you know, that type of thing. Either way, so you got mowing. Let's say, you know, this was uh, if you really were on the ball, um, you know, around Fourth of July, you're going, oh yeah, I want to put that plot in. Um, and I want to, I want it to be a fall, fall winter attraction, uh, an annual, let's say brassicas, you know, small, good, small seeded variety. Um, you go in, you, and it's, you know, it's pretty much jungle at that point, four, four plus foot tall. You take all that down. Okay. Um, a couple of things there. One, uh, let's say you did have a tractor, you could get in there with a big boom sprayer. Um, chances are a lot of the vegetation that was occupying that space 
was very late in the vegetative growth phase, if not entering reproductive growth phase. Reproductive growth phase plants are not as um, uh, profoundly impacted by herbicides um, because they're putting their energy into creating seeds, um, not growing. Um, you need that vegeta active vegetative growth for your herbicides to take effect. Okay, okay, so that's why you spray 10 days or so So that's why I'm mowing mowing. first. Gotcha. That's why I'm okay. mowing. Okay. I am resetting that clock on most of that vegetation. That makes sense. That is, is at that almost um, uh, reproductive growth state. So you're, you're going, okay, gotcha. Gotcha. Um, and now I've also taken it down to a level. If I don't have a tractor, I don't have a big boom sprayer that I can – put the booms, you know, three and four foot off the ground. I need to get that vegetation down to a level that I can manage it with a, manage it with a, with a backpack sprayer or a, or a quad with a, a sprayer. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So mowing serves a couple of purposes. Um, your initial mowing in terms of, you know, that real tall, that real tall plant, um, you know, in vegetation, you need to, you need to knock it into a, a, a growth stage that you can you can easily kill with herbicides, and you need to get it to a level that's easily managed by, you know, uh, whatever your specific equipment, you know, uh, limitations are, right? So that's your first mowing. Um, now, conventional wisdom uh, states after that mowing, you're looking a week, two weeks rebound time for that plant to start to recover uh, that vegetation to start recover from that mowing and start actively growing. Um, that is largely dependent on the weather, the type of vegetation you had, um, how close to or was it in the vegetative or the uh, reproductive growth state. You know, there's a lot of things. Either way, by saying a week to 10 days is a generally good blanket statement. Okay. You're, you're going to allow those plants to start um, a, a very rapid um, recovery mode from from that trauma of being mowed, right? Um, however, um, a couple of things to keep in mind there. Um, it, if, if you mowed it and it was really, really hot and dry, and you mowed it and it stayed really, really hot and dry, chances are a lot of those plants are just going to remain dormant. You might not really get a good kill um, even in that seven to ten day period. If, however, um, you had, you know, sufficient rain and moisture um, and say you even got rain within a day or two of mowing, those plants are going to start perking up faster. You can get on them faster. Um, you don't have to wait that seven to ten days. Um, personally, I've done mow, spray, seed in the same day. Like, within the same, you know, two hours, however long it took me to do all of that. <laughs> you know, you can do that. That can happen. It's not always the most optimal, but sometimes you got to make do with what you got, right? Yeah, um, and, I mean, and you're not hurting anything by doing that. It may not be optimal, like you said, but, right. you know, the, the Roundup's not going to hurt a seed. Um, Correct. So, so that makes yep. sense. Okay, so say yep. you've done that, you, you throw out, your your seed after you've sprayed the first time, 
And let's let's mention here that I believe small seeded varieties are better for this type of situation. Is that correct? I yes. So, um, you know, seeds are basically their stored energy. That's really what they are. That plant that produced that seed, you know, grew all season long, basically, you know, to put all that energy into that seed because that seed, you know, ultimately carries on, um, you know, the species the next year. So it's just it's a little nugget of stored um, stored energy is what it is. That's all. Oh, so, interesting. Never heard that before. Yeah. yeah. So um, the bigger the seed, you know, like it's just a bigger nugget of energy. And um, it's like uh, they, it requires more moisture um, in general. Like it's very generalized in terms of the larger seed. And when I say larger seed, I'm talking anything above cereal grains. You know, you start to get into the different beans, peas. Oats or peas, yeah. Yeah. Um, oats aren't too bad. Oats, I top oats seed the them grain, all the time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, but when you start getting in the, 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 the larger grains, um, you're probably going to want to bury those. Yeah, it can be done. I've grown soybeans this way. Um, it wasn't the most impressive looking plot of soybeans. It wasn't a very large plot either. Um, but I'll tell you, that I grew soybeans, and I grew soybeans that produced pods. Wow. Now, those pods were were gone, you know, basically by the middle of October after everything had dried down. Like, you know, <laughs> it didn't, didn't take long for that to get sucked up. Um, this was, like I said, it was a small plot. It was more of an experiment. I just wanted to see what I could grow doing, doing it this way. You know what I mean? Um, and uh, so... Yeah, larger the seed, in general, the more difficult to grow using these methods. Um, but let's face it, the majority of food plotters are planting small seeded varieties. Yeah. Basically, the largest seeds are your cereal grains, and then you go on down through your brassicas into your clovers and chicory and stuff, all very small seeded varieties. Um, so those seeds are super easy when broadcast over a thatch. They bounce across the surface and get down into all these little nooks and crannies created by that thatch. Some of them get all the way down to the surface of the soil. Some of them don't. Um, and that's where a cult packer would come in handy for this method. You could go ahead and roll over it and, and further compress things a little bit. I'm definitely going to do that, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay, um, so you, do, you, you don't need to mow again, though, but you could mow again Yeah. after you throw yeah. the seed down, but you don't need to. Okay, you don't interesting. I, th- I thought you, you had to mow again. No, I mean, if I were doing cereal grains, if, or it was a mix with cereal grains, I'm probably going to mow again. That larger seed you're talking about, you make seeds, sure it's covered. Yeah. Okay. I want a little more coverage. Not only that, but I want to make it harder for those damn turkeys and crows <laughs> and everybody else to uh, find them. No doubt. Because they they wreak havoc on a no-till top so, um uh, cereal grain plot. Okay. Uh, every year I combat this. Like right now at my place, um, you know, this this spring, the summer, I planted kind of an experimental mix, some larger seeded stuff, and you know the turkeys got in there and got after it, um, wiped me out pretty well. Uh, crows were a problem. Oh, um, but the, the funny thing is, is like right now there's no turkeys up there, none. Right now. About the 
eh, last couple of days of August, first couple of days of September, when I'm getting ready to to plant my uh, cereal grain and uh, legume mix, um, the turkeys will show up. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, yeah. They, they showed up on mine, too, when I did that last year. I mean, I still got some good coverage and whatnot, but, I mean, I'm not in a huge uh, turkey area, at least. I'm so far away from all the crop fields that maybe they're not right. as, uh, as uh, you know, prominent in this area. But I, I know they can clean out a field, especially with the crows, too. I hear you. Yeah. I hear you. Yeah. Yep. And that would be, that would be like, my primary reason for – from mowing that second time, okay. which would be after feeding, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, and then, uh, and then you, know, you could call it to pack, which you were going to say. Yeah. And then uh, you said something like, if you were going to call it to pack, and then I interrupted you. I'm sorry. but uh, <laughs> <then you> were, <laughs> I was going to say, if you were going to call it to pack, I would, I would be very, very sure that I've got my, my seeding rates, like, right where they should be. Like, and where is that? Whatever the recommended broadcasting rate is. Okay, so you're not not upping that, like you said before, to the 125%. Nope. Say it's a a pound per acre, just of of whatever, just a general number. Yep. You're not going 1.25 pounds per acre. You're going one pound per acre. Correct. Wow. Correct. Especially if I'm cultipacking. So what happens, you know how I was talking before about how you'd have those seeds and that tap roots coming out and it's, that seeds germinating three quarters of an inch from the surface of the soil in the thatch. Um, now, where you can run into problems, um, and this is where a cold packer would come in handy, is if you then all of a sudden hit like you know extreme hot, um, dry. You know, the thatch is going to help because it's still got a decent amount of moisture. But the further that seed and that little white taproot is from the soil surface, the longer it has to go to get there the more um, susceptible it is over time. To drying to, out. To drying out. I to get it. any other conditions you know, happening that could could keep it from that taproot from finally touching down on, on mineral soil. So um, cultipacker would help alleviate those situations by compressing that down a little bit and firming that up and getting that, that, um, uh, that seed you know, if not all the way down, that much closer, you know, to the to the uh, soil surface where that taproot can go ahead and you know touch down and and uh, get ready for liftoff. You know. Wow, I uh, my eyes are opened. I'm very <laughs> curious to to try this now. I I mean, I have a disc, but. I mean, and, and I think I may still have to use it for my peas and my oats. Yeah. Um, I covered those up last year, and they came up really well. But, like, yeah, I've been doing a lot of research on this. And, I mean, there's also things that, I mean, I'm not a biologist. I kind of wish I went to school for that, but I didn't. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking, like, even in the the health of the soil itself, with this oh, type, yeah. type of application, it's mm-hmm. not always a good thing to, to spray Roundup kill everything and then disc it all up because yeah correct me if i'm wrong i think you're doing a couple things there you're you're drying the soil out when you do that and secondly there's a lot of um good working bacteria and or organisms in that soil that that keeps that soil healthy yeah and that's about as scientific as i can get on it but um, yeah you, you you hit the nail on the head so like there's definitely a lot of soil health and soil building 
implications for, for planting in this way. Um, and so when you, when you, you know, kind of running like the conventional tillage operation, um, so that soil profile, that soil structure from, you know, the surface of it, you know, down however far, there's a whole network of, um, microbiology that's happening. So traditionally, like in agriculture, and then as, you know, kind of like one of agriculture's little, like, you know, um, redheaded stepchild, you know, food plotting, right? <laughs> we're kind of like, we're yeah. descended I mean, from is, that, uh, right? Yeah. You know, and, and quite often food plotters look to agriculture and agronomy to, like, uh, you know, figure out how to plant things and how to increase yield and understand fertilizer applications and lining and all these things. And it's like, which is fine because there's a lot of science there. There really is. The only thing is, it's just we're not quite, like, we're we're looking at things from a different, you know, through a different lens. So when we, we look at um, the agricultural and the agronomy um, kind of lens, like, we're looking that they're they're concerned with like a maximum yield um, for profit, right? Okay, that's a good. Point. We're looking we're looking at a different thing. Like the deer are eating our maximum yield and what would be our profit. You know, we're basically paying to feed the deer. <laughs> you know, so there's there's some difference. But back, you know, the, one of the things that's happening um, in agriculture today is there's a, there's definitely a trend towards um, the soil health, the soil biology, um, and and no tilling and cover cropping, and all these things that are kind of like, you know, we start looking at as food plotters, and it's like, whoa, cover crops. L- let me read about this. You know, I started reading about cover crops, and I was like, hey, you know what I noticed right away? Most of the cover crops being widely used agriculturally today are food plot variety. Plant for deer, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Buckwheat and rye and yeah, yeah, Yeah. rye. You know your turnips and and radishes and wheat and um, oats and you know just like you know names crimson clover. I mean, just keep going. They're all being used in an agricultural application as a cover crop for soil health purposes. For for a cover crop is a crop that's planted to protect the soil and also to help build it. You know. Um, Thanks for clarifying that. <laughs> well, so some people use cover crop as, uh, like, uh, you know, interchangeably with like nurse crop or a companion crop. Um, I think I've done that in the past. Yep. Probably everybody does. No big deal. But um, you know, it's just uh, there, there's this there's this trend towards um, towards more of like a, a soil health perspective um, and. It just so happens that this, you know, this little, this little uh, food plot planting method phenomenon that you know people call, you know, poor man, um, you know, uh, throw and mow, mow and throw, whatever you want to call it, some little catchphrase that has, you know, a slightly, uh, you know, negative connotation to it. Or I like spray and pray than, the best. That was a good yeah. one. I haven't yeah. heard about that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, no, but you're the, right. They do kind of have like a, like a negative connotation, and I wonder why that is. I mean, I'm thinking it's, maybe it's because of the the throw and grow 
bags of seed you look at the store, those are <laughs> not very good. I would never yeah. throw those out. And and for our listeners, yeah. if if you wonder why, um, if you look on there, just if you look at the the seed label itself, there's um a lot of rye grass, um, yep. a, lot, a lot of things like that that. And that's, I mean, that's one I can think of, but there's things like that that deer don't even care for, but they'll grow, though. So yeah. when you throw it out as a consumer, you see, ooh, I have a green area, you know, where I do that <laughs> stuff. It's a good product. Yeah. Well, we, when we talk rye, we talk rye grain. I mean, there's a Correct. There's a difference there. Yeah. Yep, rye um, grain, cereal rye, winter rye, whatever you want to call it. So I'm, um, I'm wondering that's if that's why it has, like, the negative connotation? or. Well, I think I think there's that. I think there's a confusion. Uh, I think there's also, like, the, you know, like, the inferiority complex of, well, this, oh, yeah. I don't have any equipment. No equipment, you know? right. Right. I, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not made of money. I don't have a, a big tractor and, and discs and, you know, a bush hog and a boom spray. I don't have all, you know, these things. And so there's this kind of, like, Oh well, you know if you don't have any of that, you can always try this. You know, yeah. Good luck. You yep. know, but at the end of the day, honestly, like I'd put my food plots that I plant using any one of those types of methods against anyone with conventional tillage, and I don't think anyone could, you know, like visually go, oh, I can tell the difference. Well, I. <laughs> I always say this when I hear something really cool on this podcast. I need to see pictures, Phil. This All sounds right, amazing. Um, I got plenty of them. And um, it's it's less work. Uh, and yeah, I'm not a lazy person, but I have three kids under five years old right now. So my wife is really like, you're going to, to do deer stuff again? I'm like, well, yeah, again. come yeah. on. So let's, I have to. Maybe hey. later in life I'd be able to spend a lot more time out there every day. But like, this, is really, yeah. this is really hitting home. Well, yeah, and, and again, I want to stress the importance of the observation. Like, like you know, like I said our conversation earlier, like, you were like, so, like, you know, what's the order of operation? Like, what? So do this step, this step, this step. And, and it's like, well. Yeah, there's only one way to do it, right? Come on. Right, there's not. And if you go out <laughs> and you observe it, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and you look at it and you see it. You see what's happening. And then you go, oh, you know what? I did if this, I did it right, in right. this op order, this would happen and offset that. You know what I mean? Like, so like I said, the whole that one time when I got out there, I was on my hands and my knees. Actually, it's not that one time. I do it pretty much every time I go to the food plot. <laughs> He's praying um, to the deer gods. Yeah, I'm digging down through the thatch and I'm looking at. Yep. You know, I'm looking at the seeds. I'm finding them. I'm like, okay, that's a rape seed. Like, what's it doing? What's it doing right now? You know, like, you, you just you gotta observe. You, you know, well, I think a lot of people who maybe haven't had success with this type of method, they, they, you know, they went on uh, to, you know, the interwebs and they found somebody who said, step by step, this is how you do it. Okay. Right. And then they go, okay, yeah, it's easy enough. I can replicate that. And then they went to their place and then they replicated step by step what that guy did. Um, the problem was like, the two scenarios were vastly different. The types of vegetation, the weather condition, the soil types, you know, the time of year. Like, there's a million variables that could have been drastically different from one instance to the other that any single one of them in and of themselves could have been enough for failure. You know what I mean? Well, I had to admit, goes, yeah, an hour and 20 minutes ago, I was hoping you would give me that exact 
step by step. You know, like, honestly, yeah. I will, I'm like, okay, you know, this, this is how you do it. And, and this is why I'm glad we're doing this podcast. And, I mean, yeah. the stuff yeah, and you have, San, you have sandy soils, don't you? I you have, have sandy soil. Yeah, yeah. We talked about that lime conversation that one yeah. night. Yeah, I have. Yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't think they were sandy, but sure enough, uh, the numbers <laughs> say they are. And and I guess another thing that could be useful, and maybe you you've done this in the past. I threw out, I frost seeded some clover and chicory this year, and mm-hmm. my plots. Um, so last year it was uh, brassicas on one half of the of one plot, and then the other half of this large plot it was. Uh, winter peas and uh, oats. And, I mean, the deer just, they, they tore them up. I looked like I knew what I was doing. Um, <laughs> but this year, you know, those were all annuals, so they all died. Um, yep. So I frost-seeded clover and chicory, and, you know, only half of that whole entire food plot came back. So I have hmm. a questionable half right now that's growing up with some stuff and this and that. And what I'm going to do, what I'm going to do, I'm, I'm going to keep that clover and chicory that came in real lush, and I'm going to mess around with this on the other half. And that way, say this doesn't work. Say I screw it up. Uh, I'm actually going to do two different strips, I believe, um, with this method here. Say both of them don't work. At least I still have something there and lush to rely on. Um, and I may have mentioned this before, but I think like diversifying like that to cover oh, yeah. your butt. Uh, yeah. You know, it there's an advantage there in case I, it all goes to hell and I'm screwed, you know? Yeah. Well, and that's just it. Like, like A, never plant a monoculture. Never. You know? And monoculture because, means one crop, right? Right. One single species planting um, because if the conditions are met for that species to fail, your entire plot has failed. True. If uh, the deer turn on to it a little too much, a little too early, that plot has failed. Um, I, I, I can't, and I like, can't stress it enough. Uh, diversified planting, like you just can't go wrong. You've got, you've got insurance. You've got insurance on a lot of things. Um, you got insurance on keeping deer fed through a longer period of time. You got insurance on that, that plot not failing. You've got insurance on, uh, keeping, uh, helping to keep your soil healthy. Um, you know, it just it, there's a lot of upside to planting diversity versus a single species planting. Now, there are some plantings, you know, sugar beets, uh, you know, uh, soybeans, corn, that all lend themselves to a monoculture style planting, right? Um, and even that's questionable because you can always get into some. Well, sugar sugar beets are kind of a weird thing like that. They just they don't do well with competition. Um, but in the case of your beans and your corn, you can always broadcast cereals and brassicas and stuff into them as, you know, as the beans yellow down. Yeah. Um, a little later on in the in the summer. Um, I'd probably recommend that to, dry up. to anybody, right? To just yeah. top dress yeah. later on with rye and wheat or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Green on grain, man, in a, in a, in a food plot, a winter food plot. Oh, man, that's. That's late season hunting, and that's Shed City right there. Yeah, that's, there you go. Like, Except if you're you in Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the other great part, too, is uh, you've got some, uh, in the case of winter rye or something like that, you've got a, you've got living roots in the soil when that corn's dead. Um, and that next spring, it's there. And uh, 
you know, it's holding it's holding nutrients in place and instead of them leaching out of the soil. Um, and it's feeding deer when the corn's gone. Um, so, you know, there's just, there's a lot of, like, there's, there's very little reason, um, to just have a monoculture anymore. Um, and there's, there's a lot of reasons why to have that, you know, higher diversity planting. Uh, and I also think in smaller food plots, that diversity, uh, becomes amplified. Um, you know, I planted a, a 5,000 square foot plot of, of brass, straight brassicas one time. And, you know, I hardly got out of October. You know, the deer turned on to them and they had them, you know, there was, there was tubers left, but they weren't, <clears throat> there weren't a whole lot of them. Wow. And the greens were, I mean, that whole, that whole plot was like dirt with some tubers and some, some stalks, you know, celery looking stalks sticking out. Wow. This. And, um, you know, I was like, man, you know, like how I, I must need like, two acres to make it through a winter, you know, and, um, I actually expanded that food plot a little bit, um, and I split it between two types of plantings. At the end of the day, even with the expansion of the plot and the division of that expanded plot into two different types of plantings, one of which is always brassicas, the other of which is a cereal grain and legume mix, what I found was I offered 6,000 square feet of brassicas, so again, 1,000 square feet more than the 5,000 foot, right? I've thought for sure, those brassicas are getting wiped out. You know, I might make it into the first couple of days of November with a, with 1,000 uh, extra square feet, right? No, what happened was that cereal grain and legume mix took on additional browse pressure, and that 6,000 square feet of brassicas actually lasted me into March. Yep. <laughs> and that's exactly you know? what happened at my, at my place. Yeah. Yeah. So right then and there, it's diversity. You know, if you just, you just gotta, and again, that was observation. That was, I rolled the dice on that one. I was kind of like, oh man, I don't know, but we're going to find out. And <laughs> sure enough, you know, that, that winter rye, winter wheat, um, and, and oats mixed with some uh, crimson clover, some medium red clover. Um, and I did put, um, I think that year I did, I did plant a couple of, um, I did add a little uh, soybeans, some late planted soybeans, just, you know, some candy and candy crop in yeah, uh, September. Um, and, uh, um, yeah, it took a significant amount of early pressure off of the brassicas, which allowed them to really take off, maximize the tonnage of the green, forage above ground, plump out those bulbs, make a, make some big tubers. Um, and, you know, by the time the deer really started to, you know, transition onto them, I had, like, significant tonnage for that small of an area, you know. I like it. I think if uh, people are thinking about what they might want to plot this fall, um, could be a good idea there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's depending on where you are in the country, like there's plenty of time. There's plenty of time. Um, I just got my brassica plantings in the ground yesterday. We got uh, 1.10 inches overnight, and we got uh, this afternoon another another half an inch um, of a good hard rain. Uh, help drive those seeds down in. Um, but, uh, 
No, there's time. Wait, you're good now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and more rain in the forecast, so, That's you know, awesome. I'll take it. <laughs> so, with this with this throw and mow, maybe to wrap this up in this in this subject, yep. um, is it important to do before a good rain comes, like any sort of seeding, or if it doesn't <laughs> rain for 10 days or two weeks, are you still okay? So, yeah, there's a couple things there. like, more there. important that you really want that rain type thing? Yeah, I, me, I, if I'm going to, I'm going to go through the, the, um, effort of broadcasting my seed i want i want rain imminent yeah. like i mean uh like you're standing in the rain broadcasting yeah. your seed yeah with my spreader covered in a in a clear plastic shopping bag like you were yesterday <laughs> like i was yesterday right Attaboy. so um i yeah i want i want that rain like happening like it's it's happening um and i'm looking for i'm looking for a type of rain like where we're getting <clears throat> getting upwards of uh you know, a half to three quarters of an inch minimum. Okay. Um, and if it out, if at all possible, um, I really want, I want a hard kind of driving rain, um, that the impact of those raindrops are helping to, um, move seed down in through the thatch closer to the soil. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's, that's kind of like the things I'm looking at, at seeding beyond that. Um, beyond the initial seeding, when I'm looking at rain, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm looking at, uh, you know, pretty much any, any rain event, that batch is helping retain that moisture longer than if it was just bare soil. So, totally agree. you know, you just, you just, you need, and I, and I, I don't even want to say you need, but ideally you want that hard rain, um, and you want it happening like right away. Um, you know, I just, I can't, I can't see having seed on the ground waiting for rain, <laughs> you know? I hear you. Um, we oh. just, we've had a big drought area, I mean a drought, um, streak here, if you will. So yep. kind of just like, if you can get it done, great, but kind of another reason why I don't want to just kill <laughs> all that clover and till it under because of yeah. the, the drought we've been having, but. No, yep. no, that makes perfect sense. I mean, obviously, if you have yep. rain, get out there and plant. So. Yep, and you know, it's uh, like if you, uh, I look at like for my area, um, part of the reason why I like I, I plot in the strips with the different um, different planting types in each strip, um, and again, each type of those plantings, like I try to keep as diverse as possible. So. Each planting has like no less than than three varieties being planted. Um, usually, it's more like five or six varieties per type of planting. So maybe you know you're you're getting in like that ten to twelve varieties across the entire plot type of thing. Wow! But the reason why I separate them, um, well, one, I don't even want to say that's it's not the reason. One of the reasons, um, and to me, it's a big one, is dialing in of the planting dates. Um, you could take everything that I plant in one plot that I, I plant in these different strips. You could plant them all together, mix it, plant it all together, throw them out there. Um, to me, what's happening when you're doing that is your planting date um, becomes a compromise um, where some of the varieties in that need to be planted. You know, let's say, uh, like last week of July, 
some of the varieties in that shouldn't be planted until the first week of September. <laughs> okay, so, I gotcha. You know what I mean? If you mix them all up and planted them all at the same time, you're looking for a planting date that's compromised. Okay. So you're having some things that are, you know, not going to perform to their maximum benefit, um, to their maximum level as they would if you broke those out into classifications. So like my brassicas, you know, a lot of people, um, and it, you know, really depends on where you are. And again, this goes down to, to observation. Um, you know, some people really plant brassicas like the first, first week of August. Um, you know, some people plant them super early. Some people plant them like the end of August. I mean, I've seen a whole wide range. I personally have planted them from, um, you know, I think July 4th was was the earliest, all the way out to um, August uh, 10th or 12th has been my latest. Um, and what I've found is in my general area, um, you're looking at a, a window of <clears throat> like July 20 to 25 seems to be like kind of like the sweet spot. Um, sweet spot for a number of reasons. Um, the types of brassica varieties that I plant, um, that July to uh, 20 to 25 window gives them like the maximum number of days uh, towards maturity before the growing season ends. So I've been able to maximize the amount of green forage growth as well as uh, the, the bulb production, the tubers. That makes sense. Um, and um, it also puts me in this, like, kind of magical window that I've, again, observed over the years of, of rain, of available moisture. Uh, it seems like last part of July in this neck of the woods, we get a lot of those, like, pop-up thunderstorms. Um, those afternoon, high humidity days, uh, late afternoon, early evening, boom, next thing you know, thunder and lightning. Uh, sky turns, you know, black and, uh, it's dropping, it's dropping rain and you're getting, you know, that kind of like minimum range of that half inch to three quarters of an inch of, um, but very hard driving rain. Um, <clears throat> so you have that. Whereas if you move out into August, I feel like over the years from what I've seen, August is a drier month. You're waiting longer and longer for between rain. Right. So if you can capture that early rain, the latter part of July, your planting is going to be in a little bit better condition going into August um, than if you were trying to plant in August. Um, and then in September, um, we're close enough to the to the eastern seaboard that we really get um, those tropical depressions as they come up the eastern seaboard hurricane season. Um, where September, even into October some years, we, we see significant rain events. Um, so September, beginning part of September, is another, like, really good planting window for those cereal grains, um, as well as for kind of finishing out the brassicas. Like, that September moisture, I feel like that's where, that's where those big tubers end up coming from, is that September moisture. Awesome. Great advice there. I um I never paid attention that close to the rain yet. Um I know that where my property is located I I tend to get a little more moisture than people in that area. I don't know if it's just this little 
section that has to do with the the way the topography is or, or what it is, but everybody complained about <laughs> a drought last year, and I my plots, like I said, dumbfoundedly looked amazing. So uh, hopefully <laughs> it, it happens again. I've been getting some rain right now again, but um, nice. We'll see. I think we. I think we covered this pretty well. Is there anything else you want to talk about in the food plot section before we move on? Um, no, I think uh, you know. I think pretty much, you know, hit as much of it as I could. I mean, it's something I can, I could probably, you know, talk over the uh, the specifics of you know for a lot longer than either one of us has. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll we'll definitely do that <laughs> on a different episode. I think the, the now. We've gone a while on a bunch of different subjects here. Um, you know, only a couple hardcore guys would be yapping this late into a Sunday night. <laughs> Anything else you want to go over before we wrap this up, or you want to save other things for another day, or, or what are you thinking? I think we can, you know, I we can wrap it up. Um, like I said, I can I can, I can pretty well ramble for a long time. But, um, <laughs> well, I enjoyed it. I did. Good. Whether it was rambling good. or not, I enjoyed it. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, and and honestly, uh, if, if if you feel that there's ever uh, a time or a need for any uh, a, a follow up, I'm you know just shoot me a message. We'll set something up because a lot of it, like, like I said, I could, I could, I could go on, <laughs> but uh, the the alarm clock is going to be a, a rough run, rough one tomorrow morning. <laughs> Well, hey, Phil, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, thank you so much again. I know it was kind of last minute, and you were able to oblige, so that was great. Uh, we have a lot of good content that people are going to love to hear. Um, so thank you very much. Hey, no problem, man, anytime. And, uh, um, yeah, just uh, let me know when uh, when it's all set to go out and all that good stuff. And, cool. And uh, I'll, um, you know, I'll share it on Facebook and stuff like that. Um, and, uh yeah, appreciate it. You will be made aware, my friend. You bet. All right, man. Have a good one. All right, man. Have a good week. We'll talk to you soon. See you, Phil. All right. Yep, later. Bye. Well, thank you very much, everybody. Another episode in the books of the Habitat Podcast, where we try to become better habitat managers. Now, if you want to hear more from us, you can find us on our website, habitatpodcast.com, the iTunes podcast app, Stitcher Radio, um, you can also go on Facebook at Habitat Podcast. And then again, you know, we're, we're open to emails, um, Facebook messages, whatever you want. We're looking for feedback. We've gotten a bunch of good feedback so far, but, you know, we always want to cover everything we can and make sure we're addressing what we can. So thanks again for listening. If you don't mind, please give us a review and subscribe online. And we will be back again soon with another episode. Thank you.